we have been in the Song of Solomon over the last few weeks. We've been going through this series called Sacred Garden. And really, the, the kind of impetus or what kind of drove me to want to walk through this was we have a lot of new young couples, engaged couples, young married couples who've joined our faith family over the last couple of years. And there's also been a lot of counseling that uh, pastors have been doing over the last few years as well. And there's just some uh, amazing guidelines that God really gives us through poetry. And all the descriptions and the beauty and the power of the Song of Solomon and talking about dating and relationships and marriage and sex, God has given us uh, his word in order to guide us. And so we were, we've been going through the Song of Solomon over the last couple months, really. And as we've been, been unpacking it, um, hearing just so much incredible feedback as far as what God's been teaching and how marriages have been healing. And we've just seen God work through the word and he's been transforming. And so it's just been so amazing to be able to watch. I get like a front row seat at seeing Jesus change people's lives. It's amazing. Uh, and so I hope that you guys have been encouraged by it. Um, and maybe some of you have been <laughs> on the edge of your seat. Maybe others of you have been like, what's he going to say next? Uh, but I hope that you've been encouraged and built up by the Song of Solomon nonetheless. Um, I don't know how many of you have ever made like a New Year's resolution before. If you'd be brave enough to maybe show me by raising your hand. How many of you have ever made a New Year's resolution? Raise your hand, right? All right, you can put your hands down. Uh, I would ask you like how many of you have kept them the entire year, but it's the same thing by asking like, how, put your hand down, right? So here's the deal. I found out something amazing about New Year's resolutions this week. 50% uh, of New Year's resolutions are done within the first week. 40% of them are done within the first three days. And only 1% of New Year's resolutions, people are willing to say, yeah, 1%, we actually stuck all the way to the end of the year. It's about three and a half months that the majority of them are like done. They're, they're, they're done. Uh, a resolution is a firm decision. It's really just a commitment that you're going to choose to do something. And, and when we talk about resolutions, um, I actually found some kind of funny, somewhat hilarious resolutions. Uh, some are unfortunate. Some are like maybe setting the bar a little bit too low. So I wanted to show you a few of them. Um, this first one was something that was broken very early. This is a New Year's resolution where uh, the husband says, update, my wife's resolution to yell at the kids less has just taken a very bad turn. And if you look at the timestamp on there, <laughs> it's like as soon as she woke up, she was just like, get downstairs. I don't know how that went down, but yeah, just bad timing on that one. She failed really quickly. Um, the next one, it, it's a very low bar, all right? Very low bar, but yeah, I can sympathize with this. Uh, this person tweets out that she has committed herself to not eating an Oreo every time as she walks into the kitchen. Um, by a show of hands, how many of you love Oreos? Yeah, it's, we're Americans. That's what that means, right? Um, okay, so here's another one that um, it's, it's funny if you let it be funny. All right, I know this is church, but it's funny if you let it be funny. The wife says your resolution this year should be to listen to me better. His response, bacon would be great. Thanks. <laughs> that's terrible, pastor. I know, I know. That's why we're talking about marriages, all right? That's why we're going through the Song of Solomon. Um, resolutions are great if we keep them. Resolutions are amazing if we keep them. If we can commit ourselves to keeping our resolutions, that we put them in place in order to commit ourselves to doing something that we know would be better for us. And so this morning, as we jump into the Song of Solomon, we're going to be looking at how they actually make up from a conflict. We've been following Solomon 
and this Shulamite, this young woman. We've seen their dating. We've seen their courtship. We've seen their engagement. We've seen their wedding. We've even seen their wedding night. Uh, yikes. But we've been able to grow alongside of them. And yet, immediately after they get married, there's conflict. There was trouble in the garden. And last week, we looked at conflict, and we saw eight different tactics that we can strategize and utilize in order to overcome conflict in our relationships. This morning, on the back end of that conflict resolution, we're going to see them take, take a new turn. They're turning a new page in their relationship. And some of the elements we've seen before in the Song of Solomon, but it's going to reinforce and reiterate those elements in order to provide for us really resolutions that we commit ourselves to in order to build and strengthen our marriage. So if you have a Bible, whether it's a digital or a physical copy, go ahead and open or find your way to Song of Solomon chapter 6. We're going to be looking at verses 4 through the end of that chapter, which is verse 13. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one located uh, in one of the seats in front of you. You can take that. It's a gift from us to you. Song of Solomon chapter 6. Um, again, we've been talking about marriages and conflict. We've been seeing how to resolve conflict. And today, as we look at how they have resolved their conflict, we left off with them having made up and after they make up, we actually see that Solomon returns in response to praise and affirmation of his bride. And we see in all of their interaction that's going to come in chapter 6, resolutions that we can commit ourselves to. So if you found your place in Song of Solomon chapter 6, I'm going to ask you to stand if you are able to. Stand with me, and I'm going to read God's word for us this morning. If you're new to grace, we stand out of reverence and respect for the word of God. We believe that the full Bible is for our full life of faith and living. So as we stand, here's what God's word says for us this morning. Song of Solomon, chapter 6, verse 4. Solomon says, You are beautiful as Tirzah, my love, lovely as Jerusalem, awesome as an army with banners. Turn away your eyes from me, for they over." Whelm me. Your hair is like a flock of goats leaping down the slopes of Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of ewes that have come up from the washing. All of them bear twins. Not one of them has lost its young. Your cheeks are like halves of pomegranate behind your veil. There are 60 queens and 80 concubines and virgins without number. My dove, my perfect one, is the only one, the only one of her mother, pure to her who bore her. The young women saw her and called her blessed, the queens and concubines also, and they praised her. Who is this who looks down like the dawn, beautiful as the moon, bright as the sun, awesome as an army with banners? I went down to the nut orchard to look at the blossoms of the valley, to see whether the vines had budded, whether the pomegranates were in bloom. Before I was aware, my desire set me among the chariots of my kinsman, a prince." Return, return, O Shulamite. Return, return, that we may look upon you. Why should you look upon the Shulamite as upon a dance before two armies? This is God's word. You may be seated. Hey, before we jump into this passage, would you please bow in a word of prayer with me? Father, we come before you. We are so grateful for your word, which is truly a guide and a light unto our path. Father, you and I both know that I can sin and that I fall short often of your glory. And so I pray, Lord Jesus, that you and your righteousness would be exalted here this morning. Jesus, I thank you that it's because of you and your goodness and your sacrifice for me that I can stand in you complete and perfected 
having nothing good of my own to give, save you and you alone, Jesus. So exalt yourself among us. Spirit, I pray that you would truly fill and empower me, that I would speak clearly and truthfully in accordance with your word for the accomplishment of your will, for the building up of this body and the advancement of your kingdom. Jesus, we love you. Help us to love you better. Help us to love you more. Spirit, I pray for conviction for those who need it in their marriage, for those who need it as singles. Lord, I pray for comfort for those who need it. Lord, who have been disillusioned by romance. Would you comfort us with your word this morning, I pray. In the mighty name of Jesus, we all said. This morning, we're going to run into three sacred resolutions for a committed marriage. The idea is that as we look at how Solomon responds after the conflict, we can set up for ourselves in our minds exactly how he resolves to continue to love her despite the conflict that, that, that they just had. Remember last week as we came away, we saw they were in conflict, they came back together, they made up. That's where we left them. And yet he doesn't stop pursuit in that moment. We see how he continues to pursue his bride. And so the first resolution that we're going to look at this morning is to commit to affirmation. Commit to affirmation. Now, some of you who've been with us over the last few weeks, you have heard this word a lot. Praise your bride, affirm your bride. We've talked about this a lot. But that's because in order to understand a function of a marriage that is healthy, that is growing, is because affirmation should never stop. It should be continual. We should be verbally generous. We've talked about this multiple times. But he adds a little bit, okay? So there's a couple different things we gotta, we gotta tackle in, in regards to affirmation, okay? The first is he gets creative with expressing and affirming her beauty. Look at verse four with me. He says, you are beautiful as Tirzah, my love, lovely as Jerusalem. All right, so he, this is new. He's not done this before. He's utilizing the poetry of describing his bride as a city. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't think it's very romantic. It might not translate completely over to our time for you to describe your wife as a city, right? If I were to tell Andrea, dang girl, you're looking like New York today. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> right? Hey, hey, what's up, LA? You know, it's like, I don't know if that's going to land very well. But here's the point. It's a lot better than me telling her, what's up, girl? You're looking like Portage, you know? Hey. <laughs> dang girl, Gaylord today, Right? Borculo, can I get an amen, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> the point is that cities have personifications. And the personification is, is actually a way that, that he is relating to her and describing her beauty. For us, we need to understand Jerusalem was like this, the city center. It was the power center of all that Solomon reigned over. So he has, he's utilized in some different ways this imagery, talking about David's tower. But here, he actually brings up Tirzah. And scholars tell us that Tirzah was kind of like this incredible diamond of a city. It was like a vacation spot. It was beautiful. It was shimmering. It was brilliant. It was on a, it was on a hill. It was incredible. Everyone would, from the region would go to Tirzah because of its beauty. And so what he's wanting to do, he's wanting to elevate, just like everybody knows, oh, he's talking about it like Tirzah. It's amazing. It's beautiful. Exactly. It stands out. Among all the cities of the world, she stands out. And throughout this entire passage, we're going to see the ways that he affirms her as one and only. Something set apart. Something that's brilliant and radiant and stands out from everything else. So he describes her as Tirzah. And for us, this is a way for us guys in the room, we need to understand that we need to be creative. You can't just keep doing the same things. So I'm going to challenge our dudes to get new 
and creative ways to affirm your brides. I've talked with a couple of guys during this series who've been like, dude, the poetry thing, that's pretty cool. And I'm like, yeah? You're like, yeah, I've been trying it out. And I'm like, how's it going? Horrible, horrible. <laughs> I'm like, well, just keep trying, right? Keep trying. So dudes, we can get creative with how we come to affirm our brides. But here's the thing, gals, I'm gonna go a little bit in the other direction and talk about how we need to be gracious when our husbands put forth the effort, all right? When, when our husbands are putting forth the effort, we need to be able to understand that, that we got to, sometimes they're going to say some things that are meant to be like, you're so beautiful, and it just is not going to translate very well, okay? What, what happens? He says, turn away your eyes from me. They overwhelm me. We'll come back to that. He says, your hair is like a flock of goats. Sounds hot, right? Now, we've, ta- we've touched on this before. He says, your, your hair is like a flock of goats leaping down the slopes of Gilead. Next, he says, your teeth are like a flock of ewes that have come up from the washing. If, if you weren't here, we were talking about how he's saying your smile is so beautiful, right? We don't typically talk about people's smiles and relate them to like goats and sheep and stuff like that, right? He says, all of them bear their twins, right? You have all of your teeth. For us, it's somewhat humorous. But for him, he's saying, you're beautiful, but he's using the same exact, exact descriptions. So here's the thing, ladies... If you're expecting new stuff all the time, we might need a little bit of grace. We might need a little bit of grace. He's using the same referent points, and yet for her, it's still a way that she feels affirmed in her beauty. Oftentimes, I will hear from men in counseling sessions where they feel like they're trying their best. They're trying their hardest. I remember talking to one individual. He was telling him, I got my wife this gift. I thought I had totally crushed it. I thought I totally killed it. As soon as I gave it to her, she set it down, and I could tell she didn't like it right away. He's like, it made me want to not get her gifts anymore. It shut him down. That rejection that he felt, right? He thought he had killed it. Here's the thing. He's utilizing what he's already used beforehand, and yet she doesn't she doesn't scorn him for it. She doesn't punish him for it. So, so whereas I would challenge the guys in the room to get creative in the ways that we're describing our, our bride and her beauty and, and the affection that we have for her, in the same way, I would ask gals, can we be gracious with our guys? Where I'm going to challenge the guys to be creative, I would ask that the gals be creative. Now, here's the thing. We've talked multiple times about affirmation, and I want to stick on this topic just for a little bit in order to kind of drive this home further. He goes on, your cheeks are like halves of pomegranate behind your veil. He's describing her beauty, okay? Throughout the entire song, multiple songs, multiple stanzas are all about praise, affirmation, and encouragement. We should not be getting to a place in our marriages, in our relationships, where we are forgetting to affirm. Our, com- our common tendency is to actually forget to affirm, forget to say, and to simply speak. And the reason why we see it over and over and over again is because all of the poetry is reinforcing. Anytime scripture doubles something or triples something, it's important. It is emphasizing it. It's like putting it in bold italics and setting underline underneath it. Solomon is giving us, guys, a window into setting forth a resolution that we would commit ourselves continually to affirmation. Here's the problem. We have a tendency to begin to forget the beauty of our wife, especially when we don't practice it. We can begin to have a critical spirit and have fault-finding eyes. It was interesting. There was a study done that Tim Keller talked about in his book, The Meaning of Marriage. There was a columnist in the New York Times who had actually done a study And the study showed that there is this 
powerful selective capability when we're beginning to engage someone romantically. And what he recognized was that powerful ability, he ended up calling the flaw omatic. He said it's like a little machine inside of our brains that as soon as there's a romantic engagement of any kind, that machine will turn on and immediately we'll begin to look for flaws. And as soon as we find a flaw, we will want to dismiss that person and move on. And this flaw omatic has only increased. That study came out in 2007. He wrote an article in 2007. In 2017, he doubled down and he said dating apps have only increased that. Now, here's the thing. I'm not coming against dating apps at all. I actually think they're powerful tools that can be utilized for good. Compatibility, it's fantastic. So don't anybody here hear me downplaying at all dating apps. But there are certain apps that have created what what uh, sociologists and psychologists have actually called the swipe culture, where we're willing to simply dismiss somebody. Why? Because we're looking for a flaw. Here's what can happen. If we aren't aware of that critical machine that is within us, which we might describe as a flaw-omatic, which I just call a sin-omatic, you're just a sinner. If we're not critical about our critical spirit, we can erode and degrade and crush the spouse that God has given us. If we are constantly finding fault with our spouse, listen, you are married to an imperfect person, right? Andrea is definitely married to an imperfect person, okay? But if we are constantly looking at the failures, the shortcomings, and the faults of our spouses, we will not have an ability to actually seek to praise them and affirm them and encourage them consistently. This is why it's so important for us to actually drill down and recognize There are constant songs that he is singing to his bride. Solomon is praising her and affirming her, especially after their conflict. It isn't, hey, we had conflict and now we made up and I'm going to live my life and you do your thing. No, he doubles back on it and he commits himself to affirming her. Listen, David actually describes our hearts and how they wander. He tells the Lord in Psalm 119.10, he says, I seek you with all my heart. And then he says, do not let me stray from your commands. Why? He's expressing our sinful human nature, which is to naturally slide away, both from the love of the Lord and the love of our lives. There is a commitment that Solomon actually shows us in how he is bringing resolution to the conflict we saw last week. He is committing to affirming his bride. Committing to affirming your spouse keeps us from fault-finding. Solomon actually tells his son in the book of Proverbs in regards to the way that we live our lives. He says this in Proverbs 5.18, Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. Look, it's not only those who are young couples who are looking to be married and those who are newlyweds. Uh, it's also those who've been married 5, 10, 15, 20 years and beyond. When we think about how we actually would seek to affirm one another, we have to recognize that where that affirmation would be in want or where there would be lack, Solomon gives us a blueprint and a guideline for actually affirming and blessing his wife with his words. There was a book that was written called The Anatomy of an Affair by a guy named Dave Carter. And in that book, he describes how how rejected husbands and neglected wives are more susceptible and prone to receiving encouragement 
in their lives, either from those who are in past relationships or those who are in work relationships. And it's one of the steps that he clues in on when he's talking about how an affair can actually take place. When we see the conflict that they just dealt with last week and the tactics that we put in place, on the back end of that conflict, their relationship not only continues forward, but it's through affirmation. Resolution number one, commit to affirmation. Resolution number two, commit to only one. In verses seven through nine, he begins to describe the community around and how he sees her as the only one out of all the women. Look at verses Look at verses 8 and 9 really quick. He says, There are 60 queens and 80 concubines and virgins without number. And then at the very end of verse 9, he says, The young women saw her and called her blessed. The queens and concubines also, they praised her. Okay, so we got to get into this. Okay? For anyone who's familiar at all with Solomon, when he is talking here about queens and concubines and young women without number, it brings up just a minor detail about all this love poetry and all this faithfulness language that he's been using throughout the Song of Solomon. Here's what it brings up. Solomon wasn't faithful to one woman. Not even close. Some of us as skeptics in the back of our minds might be reading this and thinking, this sounds great for like a monogamous relationship, one man, woman, one, 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 man, one woman for life. Get that? Like I affirm that and, I, and like I get it. But we're reading about a dude who had like over a thousand women that were a part of his harem, part of his life. So how are we supposed to square that? If we don't address it and we just like don't talk about it, I don't think we're doing any justice to the scriptures. And then if we try and placate it or look over it or downplay it at all, again, I don't think we're doing any justice to the scriptures. The word of God, you don't have to be ashamed of it. It speaks truth. So how do, we, how do we deal with Solomon's infidelity? What do we do with that? All right. I had multiple people reach out to me through this series, and they asked me about this. Hey, so, you know, like, this is great stuff, loving it, but also Solomon, the guy had a lot of wives and a lot of concubines. How do we square that with, like, the Bible? Right. Uh, it's a great impulse, I love the thought pattern. I love the processing because it wants to hold truth, right, that we know and understand in the tension of what we read. So I'm going to give you, just really quickly, as far as a teaching component of this sermon, we need to know how, how it is that we can square this. How do we engage with this, with Solomon? If somebody were to bring this to you, here's a few responses you could have. Okay, number one, sin has consequences. Sin has consequences. 1 Kings 11. 1 Kings 11. Here's what it says. Now, King Solomon loved many foreign women. So that's a no-no. There's, there's two problems right there. First of all, many and women. <laughs> okay? Along with the daughter of Pharaoh. And he's... Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women. From the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after other gods. And Solomon clung to these in love. So there's a big problem here. 
It goes on to say he had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. So the Lord said to Solomon, since this is your attitude and you have not kept my covenant and my decrees which I commanded you, I will most certainly tear the kingdom away from you and give it to one of your subordinates. Sin has consequences. For anyone who would utilize Solomon as like an example, like, well, look at Solomon. He had tons of wives. We're going to get to that in a second. But here's what I want you to know. It not only cost him his kingdom, it cost Israel peace. The nation after Solomon was actually, it went to civil war. It was split in two. Sin never happens in a phone booth. It affects everybody around you. And so if you're thinking that you're justifying some sin in your life, guys or gals, right? But primarily guys, I'm talking to here this morning. If you're trying to justify some interaction that you're having, whether it's emotional or physical, with somebody else who's not your wife. Recognize, just like Solomon lost his kingdom, you too are willing to forfeit the kingdom that God has given you in your household. You're willing to sacrifice that. If it's a digital relationship that you're having with many foreign women, if there's a harem in your head or on your hard drive, that's a problem. You're willing to sacrifice the kingdom that God has given you. Solomon is looking to the other women to praise his perfect only one. And yet the problem that we see is that he had any other women. Deuteronomy 17, 17, God says, do not marry. Do not multiply wives. Do not take many wives for yourselves. Solomon is directly going against this command. Some will say, well, Deuteronomy 17, 17 relates specifically to kings. Here, God says, I've commanded the people not to do that. I commanded that. You disobeyed it, and you're their king. So now I'm going to tear the kingdom out of your hands. When we think about our own minds, our hearts, our hands, our eyes, guys, you are committed to only one. And it, it isn't only after you're married. When you are actually in pursuit of Jesus, you're still called to purity, and your eyes also should be disciplined, even if you're single. Sin has consequences. So that's number one. If somebody says, well, what about Solomon? Number one, God, right, commanded him not to. He did it anyways, and he disobeyed. Sin has consequences. Number two, Scripture is prescriptive and descriptive. This is an an important tension to hold. Scripture not only prescribes for us how we're to live to honor God, but it also describes what happened in history. It doesn't mean that God was actually saying, I approve of this, I love this, this is what I've commanded That's not what it's saying at all. It's describing a sinful, wicked, rebellious heart against God. That's what it's doing. Much of what we see in the Old Testament that is used as cannon fodder to try and destroy Christianity today in our highly skeptical culture, much of what we see coming at us is because we simply don't understand the context of what God is describing, not prescribing. So if somebody would come to you with this, you would say, this is describing a failure and a shortcoming of Solomon's. This isn't prescribing this for anyone else. The third thing you can tell them is that Scripture is the standard, not Solomon. Scripture's the standard. I've actually had guys tell me to try and approve of their immoral behavior. The sinfulness in their lives. I literally had them tell me, hey man, you know, David had an affair and like he was called a man after God's own heart. 
hey, man, you know, like Solomon had tons of wives. So it's okay, like if I look at stuff every now and then. Here's the issue. That's not coming from a heart of repentance. You see, Jesus forgives us when we fall short. Jesus is a friend of sinners. But we must first look at ourselves in the mirror and recognize who we are. We can't deny what we're seeing. James actually tells us that the word of God is the standard. This is the mirror, and it's trying to hold up to you where we fall short. And so when Jesus would come to you, if you are somebody who's caught up maybe in a, in a, a relationship that you know is not good, if you're caught up in a relationship, whether it's physical or even online, if you are caught up in that season, here's what I want you to know. There is forgiveness that comes in Jesus Christ. When we are willing to actually look at ourselves in the mirror and honestly take an appraisal of where we're at and say, Lord, I know what I'm doing is wrong and I'm sorry. This is the heart of David that God says he loves. David recognized this sin when, so, when the prophet Nathan called him out on it. And when he recognized that, he realized what he had done was not only an offense to the, to the gal that he had commit, committed adultery with and to her husband that he had had killed. He realizes that ultimately his offense was against God, who is holy and desires to be in relationship with us. But the only way that we can actually have that relationship continued is if we recognize and turn away from our sin. And so when we look at Solomon, we don't use him as a standard to say, it's okay to do whatever I want. We look at Solomon and say, you started off so well. Man, you started off so well. And then you totally biffed it. We can't approve of what he does here. But we can still glean from the wisdom that he provides throughout this entire song and all the interactions. I thought about it when, when I was thinking about just this issue, I, I thought, you know, I want my children to have the word of God be their standard. And I also want them to know that, that I am not their standard and that, hey, daddy fell short. Hey, you know what? I messed up. Before I was married to your mom, listen, I, I was not obeying God at certain times. And what that does is it sets the tone for how Conviction in our lives can actually lead to our lives, to our households, understanding the forgiveness of God and how we can move forward in wholeness and in healing. If you are caught up, and this resolution for you is a tough one, for you to commit to only one, it, it, I know in churchy worlds this is like a no-brainer, commit to only one. But I've seen the enemy twist and subvert scripture so many times in relationships to try and bring affirmation to that which God just doesn't. That I need to tell you, brother or sister, that if you're caught up in that pattern, there is forgiveness in Jesus for you. That's Jesus came to die for sinners. He came to die for, for me, a sinner. Jesus sets the standard. In Matthew 19, he, he actually doesn't go back to the law he actually goes back to the original design. In Matthew 19, 4 through 6, here's what Jesus says about marriage. He says, haven't you read? He says this to the Pharisees. He replied that at the beginning, the creator made them male and female. And he said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and his mother and be united to his wife. And the two will become one flesh. The two in Greek means 
to when it's translated in English. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let nobody separate. Jesus goes back to the design to give a vision for what his father intended when the spirit led Moses to pen the law. This is what I'm telling you, and this is what I'm writing. Don't multiply wives. Solomon had an eye problem. And his eye problem was that he wasn't looking to only one. Here, he begins well. He says what? You're the only one. What is this resolution then? It's to commit to only one. Maybe you need this morning, as you go home, maybe throughout this week in your time of prayer with the Lord, I would urge you to pray and spend time with Jesus and say, Lord, I need to make a commitment to my eyes. I need to make a commitment to my hands and my heart. I need to make a commitment to you because I know that I'm falling short in this regard. Resolution number three. Commit to praising beauty in every season. Commit to praising beauty in every season. Where do we see that in this passage? Look at verse 10. Look at verse 10. It says, Who is this who looks down like the dawn, beautiful as the moon, bright as the sun, awesome as an army with banners? Okay, so here's what he's doing. Solomon, wisely and beautifully, I mean, it's like this is poetry or something. It's like this is poetry. So in chapter 1, she actually tells him that the sun has darkened her skin, right? We talked about that. We talked about how that was actually a sign of status and where you were at because you worked outside or you, or you worked inside. It had nothing to do with race. It had nothing to do with color. It had everything to do with like a social status. And she was saying, don't look at me. I've been wor- I work outside. Like you're a prince. You shouldn't even look at me. And she's wanting to push him away, right? She like rejects him before he can even accept her. We talked about that in the very beginning. And she utilizes the son to describe how he shouldn't turn his eyes to her. In this passage, he does the exact opposite. He undoes this with his affirmation. Okay? In verse 5, he says, Turn away your eyes from me because they overwhelm me. He says, You were wanting me earlier in our relationship to not look at you because you didn't think you were pretty. You didn't think that you were the standard of beauty of our age, but I wanted to look at you. And here now that they're married on the other side of the altar, he's looking at her and he's saying, you know what? You turn your eyes away from me because whenever I see them, I just can't even take it. I can't handle it because you're so beautiful. You're so beautiful. And then he utilizes the sun. He utilizes the sun that earlier on in this, in this song had actually caused her to, to not have a standard of beauty. He says, forget just being like darkened by the sun, girl. Like, you are like the sun, radiant, shining, and brilliant, warming everything that it touches. And as, as a matter of fact, you're like the moon as well that stands out in a pitch black sky. You stand out in your brilliance and your radiance. Again, this entire This entire poem, this entire song that he's singing to her in this moment is elevating her as one and only. You stand out like Tirza. You're like the moon. You're like the sun. You are beautiful, dazzling, and radiant. Guys, when we actually look at what Solomon is doing, we have a blueprint for what to do after conflict. When we've made up, you come back to these resolutions and you commit to this. I've got everything I need at home. I'm not looking over there. I'm gonna praise her beauty. And I'm going to see that she's not only the only one, but in every season of life, I'm going to make sure she re- uh, that I reaffirm 
for her, her beauty and her value to me. He utilizes the son not only to once again talk about what, what originally had pushed her away from him in her eyes, but he actually utilizes the sun and the moon in order to talk about seasons as well. There, this, this component, I think, for one, is it's one that applies in multiple areas. It applies in multiple areas. Praising in transition seasons. We touched on this a little bit earlier in the Song of Songs, but I'm going to reiterate this here. There's Here, there's commitments for dads, for husbands, and for those who are walking through different stages and seasons of life. For dads, here's a word of wisdom, wisdom okay? When we continue to see our bride as our friend, we see their beauty only become more and more beautiful, okay? But here's what I want us to realize for dads. Dads of daughters, we should not let future or potential suitors be the first dudes in our daughters' lives to hear that they are beautiful. I remember when I was in Bible college, we were sitting around in a class, and in this class we were talking about past wounds and past wounding events. I don't know if it should have been mixed in co-ed, but it was. And as we were talking about past wounds and past hurt, wounding events in our lives and past hurts and pains, there was a gal that brought up the fact that she was a pastor's kid, and as a pastor's kid, she ended up leaving the house, going to work in the world, and there were guys who automatically started telling her that she was beautiful. She was like, I began to fall into relationship after relationship after relationship. When I finally came back to the church and came back to Christ, I was in a counseling session and I finally realized one of the things that I was so drawn to in these guys wasn't the fact that they were good guys. Not at all. I was drawn to them because they told me I was beautiful and my dad never had. She said, I had three older brothers. They were praised for everything that they did. They were, a lot of them were just like my dad. They were praised all the time. But as a young girl, I was so eager to hear. I tried to fit into the mold that I thought he wanted, but I never heard I was beautiful from him. And when I got into these spaces, a 19-year-old working in a gym, and all of a sudden, a guy started telling me he was beautiful. And then the next job I had as a waitress, another guy's telling me he's beautiful, and guy after guy after guy. And I gave my heart over to them over and over and over. Now, here's the thing. As a pastor, I know that there's definitely sin patterns. It's not just past wounds that allow us or give us the freedom to sin. That's not how that works. So, so the counseling there should have been, okay, there's sinfulness that you're adding, but the wound in her life left her wide open for other men to tell her she was beautiful. Yes, dads of daughters, you need to praise and encourage and affirm their power, their wisdom, their intellect, their wit, their intelligence, their humor, but we also need to praise and affirm their beauty. The season of transition that she just went through, she was a country bumpkin who had really dark skin and she didn't think she was pretty. She did not think she was the standard of beauty. Solomon here after the altar tells her, you're not some country bumpkin. You're like Tirza as a city and you are beautiful as the sun and as the moon. Do you see how he's allowing us to watch that transition? This is a guide for us as dads to affirm. Husbands, Wives, our wives, will go through seasons. We're not static. We change over time. And we often need to recognize that in different seasons of life, we need to be reaffirming all along the way in every season of transition. Think about if you move and what types of instability that can bring. That's a season of seeking affirmation, seeking to praise. When there's loss, job, loved one, good friends. That's a season of transition in which we can look to love and affirm and reaffirm our love for them. 
Your kid moves away. Your kid walks away from the Lord. A grandchild is leaving the church and you are brokenhearted. This is when the heart needs affirmation. So husbands, we need to be mindful about those seasons of transitions. Seasons to remind. In every single season of our marriage, we need to remember, and Solomon gives us just a perfect little blueprint for this, that we need to commit ourselves to praising over and over and over again. When I think about the Song of Solomon, we constantly are working on both the horizontal level and thinking about the dynamics and interactions within our relationships, within our engagements, and within our marriages. We've been talking a lot about that. But consistently, I've wanted to bring it back to the Christ connections that we see. She talks about him as her kinsman, this prince. And all along the while, throughout the entire Song of Songs, there is behind it, not just the horizontal, but behind it, there is the vertical relationship that we need to constantly be reminded of and come back to. That the ultimate love of our lives is actually the Lord himself. The love of our life Maybe our bride, maybe our husband, but the love of our hearts and our souls for eternity is Jesus Christ himself. Here's why words of affirmation are so important. Here's why all of these songs are incredible for us to not only learn from, but, but that ultimately point us up to heaven, to the seat of Jesus, our king himself. This is why it's so important, because Jesus himself is the word of God, the preexistent word of God who became incarnate for us. And he is the one who actually comes in, who cleans up, who cleans house, brings forgiveness, and heals us. When we have rebelled against him, he pursued us. Even when we were broken and messy, he didn't care. A lot of us think that somehow we come to church and we've got to get cleaned up before we come to church. Jesus is like, come to church as you are because the point of the gospel is that you would come here and that he would actually take all of your brokenness, hurt, and pain, and he would be the one to clean you up. And he would be the one to say, I am the lover of your soul. I am the very word that is brought to build you up and to give you not only affirmation, but more importantly, salvation. When we think about how God has given us his word and how Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of the word of life. Uh, in John 1, he says that the word was with God and that the word was God. Who is he talking about? He's talking about Jesus Jesus is the word that comes into our lives in order to give us our solid foundation, give us eternal life, and give us abundant life. And when we think about Jesus giving us his words, we need to recognize that he himself has given us words of affirmation all throughout scripture. They're called the promises of God. They're called the promises, and we can bank on them and come back to them and read them. And they, like Solomon, to the Shulamite, are brought to us in order that we would sense and know and be able to actually have a reliance and dependence that Jesus resolved to commit himself to his bride. Imperfect though we may be, he will never leave us. Here's a few promises. If we are fearful of God rejecting us, God tells us, I have possessed you, you are mine. In Isaiah 43, 1, he says, do not fear, I have redeemed you, I've bought you, I've purchased you, I have summoned you. In Joshua 1.9, if anyone is fearful of being alone, God tells Joshua, do not be afraid or discouraged, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Christians, when we open our Bibles and we're looking in seasons of difficulty, do we not have the perfect bridegroom who brings to us his loving word that affirms us and guides us in all truth? We do. 
We have that loving Savior, and his name is Jesus. For, for, for those who are worried and anxious, what does Jesus say? In John 14, 27, he says, My peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give it to you. He is our peace. And one of my all-time favorites, which I think kind of stands in the background of all of the Song of Solomon, when we consider on, on the spiritual plane, on this uh, vertical axis, our relationship with Jesus. Zephaniah 3.17 says, The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. And he will exult over you with what? Loud singing. We have in the Song of Solomon this horizontal plane, this real relationship, this historical, actual relationship, which we can learn and glean from, that we can be built up in and know how to be better brides and better husbands. We can learn from it. But behind all of it, you and your spouse stand not as, as husband and wife for eternity. You stand as brother and sister in Christ for eternity. And when we consider our spiritual, the spiritual reality of our relationship with Jesus, it is he who would come and sing over you, exult over you. Some of us who come from like heavy CRC, PR backgrounds, all of the reformed backgrounds, we're more used to thinking of ourselves as worms than as those who Christ saw and wanted to come and save. The encouragement for us is to recognize that there are resolutions that they make after their conflict that we can commit ourselves to, but behind all of it stands the gospel, which is glorious, that tells us, yes, yes, I saw you, I committed myself to you, and I died for you. When we think about how we affirm and how we praise in our relationships, when we think about the power of words, it reminds me of a time I was in a store and as I was walking in the store, there was a mom and a, a boy and a girl that were walking. And the little boy was kind of looking down this toy aisle. And as he was walking down, he was looking at this toy aisle. His mom and his sister were in front of him. Sister's pacing a little bit in front of the mom. And the mom stops and looks down an aisle. And the boy is like laser focused, just like a tractor beam on these Nerf guns, which the little boy, of course he is. But as she stopped, he didn't see it. He didn't recognize it. And the wonder in his eyes that I saw as I walked behind this, little, this younger family was amazing as he gazed at these Nerf guns. But it changed instantly when he clipped the back of his mom's heel. And all the moms said amen, right? We've been in those situations. But what happened was, a, was, was pretty sad to me. She turned around and chewed him out. I mean, this kid was no older than six or seven. She ripped him a new, new one, swore at him. And what was unbelievable was what happened physically to his body. He went from walking like this and kind of looking at these Nerf guns like they were so cool. As soon as he hit her, he looks over at her, and I just watch from behind as his body just sunk. It crippled his heart when she destroyed him with words. Words are powerful. We need to consider them in our relationships the reason why words are powerful is because ultimately all words point to the true word, the only word, who is the word, it's Jesus Christ himself. Look, if you've come here this morning, some of what I've touched on has been difficult to hear because you've been in a place in the past that wasn't great. Maybe you didn't hear words of affirmation. Maybe you 
Maybe you had fallen into patterns of sin. You're broken. You're a sinner. Church is the place for you. Because Jesus said that the church is his bride. And he will continually praise and affirm her with his word. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for sending your son. Jesus, we thank you that you came as the word, as the truth, as the life, that you've given us your word to guide us. And Jesus, I just pray for those who are here this morning, who maybe in the past have been caught in patterns of sin. Maybe, Jesus, maybe there's a marriage right here right now this morning where there is a deep lack of affection for one another. There has been an absence of words of affirmation and encouragement and praise toward one another. Maybe it's been days, weeks, months, perhaps even years. Jesus, I pray that by the power of your spirit, you would resurrect those marriages, heal them. Lord, bring them from brokenness into wholeness, Jesus, we pray. In your mighty name and all God's people said.